This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Today, we speak to Bu Sulin, Editor-in-Chief on, at Cloak Blue, as we discuss with her all the various healthcare legislation that's been taking place in the past few months. And there's nothing more important than actually having a conversation about the recent healthcare white paper. And we get her views on the recent developments with respect to this paper. But good morning to you, Sulim. The long-awaited healthcare white paper has been finally tabled by the health minister, Dato Zaliha Mustafa. It's been passed through Dewan Rakyat. Can you help us explain how consequential this white paper is? Since, you know, it's been talked about for such a long time by multiple administrations. So give us a sense of why it's such an important paper. Um, right. Thanks for that question, Philip, uh, and having me on the show. Uh, the Health White Paper is a very important document because it is supposed to set out the reforms that the country wants to take in healthcare uh, for the next 15 years. Uh, and we're talking about, well, the White Paper is supposed to talk about reforming the entire uh, healthcare sector, not just not just the Ministry of Health, but you know the entire system, both public and private. Um, so what happened was that uh, the Ministry of Health tabled um, the health white paper in Parliament. Um, the Health Minister Dr. Zaniha Mustafa tabled it. It's a fifty-nine page doc- page document. Um, so when Parliament passed the white paper, it's basically uh, Parliament endorsing the directions that the government has proposed to take to reform healthcare for the next 15 years. What struck me, though, was the length of the document. I mean, you say it's 59 pages. It feels very light yeah, for a white paper. You know, I was expecting reams of paper which detail out a lot. So when I heard the number 59 pages, I'm thinking, oh, it must be very high level. Still, it must be pretty general. So there's nothing to argue about with respect to this white paper. It's intuitive, right? So... You know, was there anything consequential in it, considering that actually it was a relatively thin document? No, I think you brought up like a very good point, Philip. I mean, when I saw it, I was like, what? 59 pages only? <laughs> because you're talking about 15-year reforms. I honestly, I expected like a 300-page document. Exactly. You know? Because you can have the executive summary for MPs who may not have the time or may not want to read a 300-page document, uh, but then the executive summary... Um, would would just encapsulate the main points that the uh, government that white paper is trying to propose, right? But then, yeah, like you said, when you read it, it's quite general, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of big ideas thrown in there. Like, for example, MOH, I think for me, uh, the most important for Code Blue, uh, what we really highlighted from the white paper was the um, pretty radical uh, idea to reform the and restructure the Ministry of Health by having MOH only be regulator, uh, because right now it plays all three roles, right? MOH is the regulator of healthcare, all healthcare, both public and private. Um, MOH is a pr- provider, and that's a role that that most Malaysians are familiar with, MOH as a healthcare provider. And MOH is also a purchaser of healthcare services. So the white paper is proposing taking away two of those roles, uh, the, the purchaser and provider so that mm-hmm. it's only focused as regulator. But again, you, you know, they have big ideas, right? But then there are, there's very little details about what that means, you know, like, where, for example, document talks about autonomy um, for the public healthcare facilities right now under the MOH, but there's no details. Like, what does it mean? Well, what do you mean by autonomy? 
And what do you mean when you say you want a new strategic purchaser entity to to purchase uh, healthcare services from this special health fund? I mean, the MPs, uh, they did ask questions in parliament about uh, about these things, but then the minister, when she was winding up the debate, she, she didn't provide any much details, really. I find it very interesting because the the key reforms you talk about really are focused on efficiency, about governance, about, you know, organizing much more efficiently. And I presume the outcome for that will be cost efficiency, so be governance, right? But when you talk to the men on the street, they really are asking like, oh, are we going to have more hospitals? Are we going to basically improve the number of doctors? And nurses, you know, in coverage, right? So those are the bread and butter issues that we think about the dollars and cents per se. I, I wonder when you look at the whole paper, how much proportion and effort did they put on the actual investment required as a total sense as opposed to organizing themselves to deliver things efficiently? Right. Um, so the white paper does, you know, say, okay, we want uh, Malaysia should, should have 5% of the GDP put into healthcare spending by its like. It doesn't even justify why. Why 5%? And when you say 5%, I mean, the GDP changes, it goes or it shrinks <laughs> in, in the coming years, right? So what is that? Is that the right measure in the first place, right? right. Percentage of GDP. Shouldn't we look at it on a per capita or per population basis instead? R- right. Or, um, you know, and I think one of the most... So so basically, uh, in Parliament, when in Parliament, when, when the MPs were debating the white paper, really all they focused on was, okay, besides the ridiculous nurses' uniform, which was all everybody talked about, the other key thing that MPs and the general public uh, picked up was a fee review in, in public healthcare facilities. So, of course, that's really controversial. And also, they really make sense for it to be in the white paper because we know that medical fees collected uh, by the MOH only comprises 1% of MOH total revenue and, and that one percent the medical fees is more than the one ringgit five ringgit user fees you know it also encapsulates like the other kinds of fees that you pay so it doesn't seem useful you know to, yeah. to do it it's a political suicide so i actually wanted more details from the white paper on so when you propose social health insurance so to me i personally support that because i think we need another um, source of healthcare financing uh that mm. comes from everyone uh, not just government allocations but then the white paper is very very Thin on details on the kind of social health insurance that it's proposing. Like, well, like, for example, what the contribution rates that it's proposing, mm-hmm. right? For employers and employees. And I presume this paper should give birth to many more papers. <laughs> That's the expectation, hopefully, that it will translate to more detailed policies like what you talk about just now, right? I mean, that, that should be the goal, no? I think the main problem that I have is that, look, why did the government table the white paper in parliament? It could have, MOH could have just published the paper on its own, like like many other reports that it has. So why did it put it through parliament? The reason why you want to put it through parliament is because you want bipartisan support from elected representatives uh, on behalf of the people to accept the direction that this country will go for the next 15 years. So when you have like uh, radical reforms proposed and Reforms are by nature, any kind of reform is uncomfortable because it's a change of the status quo. But then the reason why the government is proposing these certain reforms is because uh, there's a reason for it, right? But I didn't see that reason encapsulated in the document. What I'm saying is that you have the government has to be transparent. The Ministry of Health has to be transparent in what it wants to do. So if it wants social health assurance, if it wants MOH to no longer be a health service provider and to have more autonomous hospitals instead, 
it needs to be very honest with the people about what exactly it's proposing. And it has to be in the white paper itself that all the MPs are seeing and have passed in parliament so that it gets support from the public. You cannot, you, you know, you cannot just table a vague paper full of jargon that nobody really understands yes. and try and kind of like secretly um, implement some of the reforms that, that they want to do without informing the people, without getting uh, pro- uh, feedback, uh, without getting buy-in and support from the public first. Do you know what I mean? You have to get support from the people. It's difficult, but you need to make your case for it. Yes, this is a very interesting point, right? Where what happens a lot is you get approval for something very high level, which you can't debate about. It's like intuitive and makes sense. But the actual controversy is in the execution and the details of it. But what happens is the government then tends to pivot and say, look, you actually endorsed it on a high-level basis. But I wonder how MPs then think about it, right, when they voted for this in view that they voted for something different from how it's going to be executed. And then what happens then is that it goes through this whole brouhaha in cabinet and then it's U-turned all over again. So then the health paper then becomes irrelevant in the future because it just can't get implemented in the process. Yeah, like for example, take the fee review because it's the simplest one that everybody understands, right? Like if you have a 100% increase from one ringgit to two ringgit, that's still a 100% increase. And then say if, if the government does it later on by just amending, and MOH, the health minister, has the ministerial authority to, to amend any uh, regulations uh, under uh, leg- legislations in the Ministry of Health. So if they amend a regulation under the fee sector, then suddenly people find out that, oh, wait a minute, it's no longer one ringgit, it's two ringgit, or maybe it's even 10 ringgit, right? And then there'll be a public uproar, and then what, the government is going to flip-flop <laughs> and reverse it? That doesn't make sense. You don't want to do that. You don't want to end up flip-flopping, right? If you have a good justification for increasing user fees, then you have to make it publicly and you have to tell people what it is that you're proposing so that you can get their support first. And then when you do it, there won't be public uproar, for example. Well, it's evident that we have a lot of more work to do to basically turn this white paper into reality. But we're going to head into some messages and we come back and continue our discussion with Wu Sulit, Editor-in-Chief of Code Blue, about GEG. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show... I speak to Bo Sulin, Editor-in-Chief of Code Blue, as we have a discussion about all the different healthcare reforms being discussed in Parliament. And so, you know, Sulin, I wanted to get your thoughts about now this very controversial bill called the Generational Endgame Bill. We just had a conversation about the healthcare white paper, how it lacked detail, but this wasn't quite the case for GG, or was it right? Well, okay. So the name of the bill is the Control of Smoking Products for Public Health Bill. And I've always called it I've always called it the tobacco bill, not the GEG bill, because the GEG really is just one small component of the bill. This is supposed to be Malaysia's first ever tobacco control act. Um, because we right now we don't have that basic piece of legislation. Uh, tobacco products, meaning conventional cigarettes and other conventional products are regulated currently under uh, control of tobacco product regulations under the Food Act, which is obviously unsuitable. And that's why the Ministry of Health has been pushing for this bill for a long time. Uh, and that that particular regulation under the Food Act, it does not cover vape and e-cigarettes. So this, this new bill that everybody had expected to pass Parliament covers that, regulates both tobacco and vape products. But I wasn't surprised that it didn't pass Parliament. Oh, why were you not surprised? Because like many of us, we were thinking it's a slam dunk, right? So we actually thought, why did the ministry have to refer to the PSC again, the Parliamentary Select Committee again? We thought that she already had done the first round. 
So why was it that she was just not able to get it through parliament since there was already an earlier PSC in place? Yeah, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> I knew that politicians didn't like the bill. Okay, this is technically a new bill. This is this 2023 bill is a new bill. The bill that KJ tried to push through last year. Harry right? Yeah. 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 So that was uh, the previous bill, the 2022 bill, and that bill died when the 14th parliament was dissolved. So this 2023 was a new one, but this 2023 bill was drafted, yes, as you said, Philip, based on recommendations by the select committee that was chaired by KJ in the last parliament uh, to, to review the 2022 bill. And the reason why I'm not surprised, yeah, like I said, because politicians don't like the bill, they put, whether they're from the 14th or 15th parliament, across board, um, from whichever party, there is an apparent um, dislike towards the GEG in particular. Why? why? Why do they dislike it? That's the that's the interesting thing I think people are understanding, right? Because perhaps maybe many of us who are living in this bangsa bubble, who are this, you know, liberal in view and would think this is a no-brainer. So why do politicians not like this bill? So there are different reasons. Um, I mean, I've talked to several politicians um, previously um, and they, well, of course, they're all like off the record. So this kind of being but they were quite open with me about it uh, there are different reasons Philip so some of it is uh, they're afraid of losing voter support especially in rural constituencies and there are also some MPs who don't like the bill or the GEG because they think that it is a by banning cigarettes for the future generations it is a slippery slope towards other bans they're afraid of corruption from enforcement so they're all pretty valid uh, concerns. And clearly, the government, this this government health minister, in particular, um, they were not able to address these concerns. Yeah, and that's pretty much why the bill failed. But what I was really surprised, Philip, although I wasn't surprised that the bill wasn't passed, I was surprised, though, when the bill couldn't even get to a debate. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I knew that was going to be referred. So Code Blue, uh, before the bill was tabled, Kublu already reported that a cabinet meeting had decided to refer the bill to a select committee uh, after tabling. But I thought they would only do that after the debate, after you hear from MPs themselves about what they feel about the bill. But this, yeah. the government sent it straight to Dr. Zul's select committee after first reading. What was and, and I guess that's the question, right? Like, what is the problem of allowing a debate on this bill? Is the government afraid of losing face? Is the government afraid that members of parliament who voice their true opinions would be caught uh, with some with a very unpopular opinion? What is the logic of why they didn't allow the debate? Actually, I think it has nothing to do with uh, votes, uh, with how the vote was going to be. Um, because if, if, look, the government controls nearly two-thirds majority in parliament, right? And if it had gone to a vote, I highly doubt that the opposition would ask for block vote. I mean, this is this is a public health bill, right? Usually, block votes are reserved for like really so-called political bills, which which this isn't. Yeah. Um, it's not partisan. What it means, this uh, tobacco bill is a partisan. So, if the government really wanted to, they could have passed it easily. Yes. I mean, I mean the opposition may make some noise. Like, for example, past MPs may may question uh, in the debate, like, oh, why are we banning cigarettes? Why aren't we banning alcohol or or gambling or you know whatever not. But it's easy, I think, for the minister to address and rebut those uh, 
uh, those statements, right? And then the government could have passed the bill, the opposition in a voice vote, and the opposition wouldn't do anything. And that's why I find it so interesting, right? It could have been passed. So I'm wondering what was the reticence to, to you know, just prolong this since it's actually quite embarrassing that she had to go back to the select committee. That means it's not been well thought through, right? This could have been passed. I think that's the, the big hit scratcher for many of us considering that you see actually many professional bodies, many NGOs actually very unhappy with the outcome. I think the main concern really, look, I mean, last year, uh, of course, everybody was disappointed that that the government KJ failed to get the bill to pass. But, uh, but the difference, Philip, is that this year the government declassified liquid nicotine since last March thirty first. So that put an extra urgency on the government to quickly pass the bill. Yes. Ideally, it should have been done before the April first tax on e liquids with nicotine kicked in, so that. Um, there is no lacuna in the law that the government itself admits. So it's very mind-boggling that the government would allow a lacuna in the law. It's just not, not it's completely unimaginable, as I wrote in my op-ed, for the state to legally allow children and teenagers aged below 18 access to nicotine products. And so that's why I'm thinking out loud, right? This is not well thought through then. If, if you it's a disaster. It. I think you're putting it wrongly. Yeah. This is a public policy disaster. Again, we are talking about children here mm. having access, legal access, to a very addictive and harmful substance. And I wonder why that has not been done. Why this administration is this? Would this really boil down to the naivete of the administration not really knowing how to navigate these policy matters? That can't be the case, right? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, it, regardless of party, right, the government itself, the, the state, usually does not deliberately uh, create lacuna and create gaps in the law, especially one as massive as this. Of, of course, it was a cabinet decision, right, to put a tax on e-cigarette and vape liquids with nicotine from April 1st. So, okay, fine, we accept that fact, that cabinet has already collectively decided to do that tax. But I think what the health minister could have done was to really, really push the case to get the tobacco bill passed before April 1st, yeah. which she failed to do. And you cannot blame cabinet for that. You cannot blame other government parties because, you know, other ministers, look, they have their responsibilities too. They have their own bills to push. I mean, Azalina and Ram Kapal were busy pushing a slew of really uh, reformist and progressive bills through parliament and they succeeded. Right? So you cannot expect other people to look after your own bills for you. You have to take responsibility for your own bills. Um, so I feel like the health minister could have done a lot more to, to really push the tobacco bill um, for passage in the first parliamentary meeting of the year that started in February. But then for some strange reason, she never really openly uh, talked about the tobacco bill ever since she took office. like She's not really mentioned it on social media. She has to help press conferences on it or issued much uh, press statements on it and then now here we are and we have no idea we don't know what's going to happen all we know is that uh, the select committee now has it Dr. Zoe told me that the select committee has planned meetings um, to talk about the bill um, they're also planning a few more engagement sessions with the bar council uh, the industry some NGOs um, but then uh, the health minister's special advisor uh, Calvin Yee he said that the 
once the select committee issues its report, it will be sent to the Ministry of Health first and then to Parliament. So, you know, it's like there is no, and that's why I said that the tobacco bill is undead. It's not, it's not dead because it has been tabled, but it's not alive either. It's, it's undead. Sulin, thank you ever for your time. That was Bu Sulin, Editor-in-Chief at Code Blue, about really the whole series of health reforms being undertaken by this Madani administration. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.